Uh, this is from First uh, Peter chapter 5. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. This is the word of the Lord. Who's seen it? Oh, man. I have seen it about 15 times, and I still can't help but laugh. We are in a series called Wrecked. And there's the way things are supposed to be, and then there's wrecked, right? Um, wrecked is when your bad eyes, one points this way and one points that way, and your wing is, you know, up here and the other one's down here or behind you. And um, it's, it's when, well, show it again, Kelly. This is wrecked. It's when earth, wind, and fire gets replaced by slide whistles. That's, that's wrecked, okay? Uh, the word for the writer, writers of the New Testament, they, when they came to this idea, they would use a word, and the word is sin. Sin. It, sin just means, when we, we encounter it in Scripture, it just means to miss the mark. Um, and we're in the middle of a series called Wrecked, and we're talking about this idea of sin, that sin is a power, sin is a parasitic force that takes the way that things are supposed to be and twists them up into bad kindergarten Halloween craft projects, okay? And uh, somewhere around the 6th century, Christians begin to put this power of sin into categories. And the result was seven broad areas of sin that distract us from the road ahead. Um, these sins, when we give them our attention, they they will send us into the ditch, they will send us into a tree or over a cliff, and we will be wrecked. And so we've been looking at one each week. Here's the list. We've pride, we, we talked about envy, which is an obsession with what others have, sloth, greed, lust. We talked about anger, which is just distorted justice, and then gluttony. And seven ways, or what these are, that we assault ourselves. We assault those around us. We, we assault our world as a whole, and they have come to be known as the seven deadly sins. And what we point out each week is this, that they are deadly. And so Jesus comes, and he offers us guardrails to go through uh, when we encounter the curves of life. And our goal here in this series is to find the way that we can wreck the sin in our life before the sin in our life wrecks us. And so today we're going to go to Daniel chapter 4, and there's a story there, and the full story actually begins at the top of the chapter. Um, Nebuchadnezzar, king, is the king, and he has a dream. And this dream uh, scares him. He doesn't know what to do with it. He's afraid. And the dream uh, is this, that he sees this huge tree. It's a tree of all trees the, the canopy of this tree covers the whole earth. It gives shade and protection and food and life to everything in its path. Um, men and animals and birds are sustained in its shadow, everything. And then 
God, all of a sudden, comes and lops this tree off at the trunk. The branches are stripped, the fruit is scattered, the animals and the men flee, and only the stump of this tree is left. And so Nebuchadnezzar calls the prophet Daniel in and says, I'm scared. What does this dream mean? And here's what Daniel says. This is verse 24. He says, this is the interpretation, O king. It's a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may be perhaps a lengthening of your prosperity. And all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of the 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and he said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. And while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling place shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men. He ate grass like an ox. His body was wet with the dew of heaven until his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. And at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, now we get his version, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me And I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. And He does according to His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay His hand or say to Him, what have you done? At the same time, that my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty, and my splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords, they sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just. Would you read this last line with me? And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Nebuchadnezzar in his day was the king of all kings. He was the most powerful monarch alive by an order of magnitude. He 
builds this incredible civilization. He probably builds the most incredible city in history as his personal residence, Babylon. Maybe you've heard of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. He was behind that. And you can probably count on one hand the number of people in history that had as much power and control as Nebuchadnezzar. And yet, his life spirals out of control anyway. The dream foreshadows all that is to come to pass. And the idea that we get is that he literally goes insane. He starts to live out of doors in the wild. He, he eats grass. There's no shelter for him. His hair gets long. His fingernails become like talons on a bird. He becomes an insane, dirty, homeless man. And here's the incredible part, that in the end, after he goes through this seven season, whatever that is, seven weeks, seven months, seven, seven literal seasons, we're not sure, after he goes through this, this is the incredible part. He praises God for it happening. He says, I'm glad, because he recognizes, I had a spiritual cancer in me that was dangerous, and it took drastic surgery to get rid of it. The treatments were harsh. I went out of my mind. I literally went off grid and off my rocker, but it was worth it to get rid of this disease in my life. What's the disease? The deadly sin of pride. Pride. He went to, from the thrones to the thorns and back to the throne. And in it all, Nebuchadnezzar came to see and recognize his sinful pride. Now, that's a hard thing to do. Um, pride, Jonathan Edwards says, is the most hidden secret and deceitful of all sins. It's said that pride is the root of every other sin that we might engage in. C.S. Lewis had this idea that all the other sins that we could possibly commit are like, get this, flea bites compared to the sin of pride. And so pride is hard to spot. It's hard to nail down, much less kill in our lives. So we need a little field guide for pride. I want to go through this very quickly, but basically pride can appear in either one of two directions and then in six interrelated forms. Pride often, most often, appears when I'm at my best, right? When successes come into my life, pride wants me to capitalize on those successes. And so the first category of pride is actually building ourselves up, building up. This is me succeeding when other people fail, and sometime, somehow I've separated myself, and I'm, I want to take pride in that, right? Uh, so that comes by way of self-exaltation, and self-exaltation wants to take all the credit for myself. Self-promotion. Self-promotion wants to say, hey, look what I did, and I want to take credit from everybody around me. And then self-justification is highlighting all of the good stuff that I did so that everybody piles on uh, the applause, and by extension, God himself will look favorably on me. And so I want the credit for myself, I want the credit from you, and I want the credit from God. That's pride. Nebuchadnezzar said, I've built all this for me, for my glory. And when we succeed, when others fail, we build ourselves up. Now, there's another side of pride, and that other side of pride is the complete opposite. It's not puffing our, our chest out when something goes right. We get that, right? That's intuitive 
to us, but we also have an opportunity for pride when things don't go our way, when we suffer. The cancer of spiritual pride can grow even then. And call, we're going to call this tearing down. Um, it's not really in our text. This is not the way Nebuchadnezzar went, but it's nevertheless an issue, and pride still comes out. And there are three more forms in this suffering kind of pride, self-degradation, self-demotion, self-condemnation. And all of these, what they amount to, are pity parties that we throw for ourselves or we ask people to throw for us that prove that we have performed poorly or that we are worse off than everybody else out there. And they basically plan a funeral for our ego. And we, we ask, why in the how is this related to pride? Oh man, it's sneaky. In chopping ourselves off at the knees, we are actually fishing for affirmation and reassurance from other people that we think that we deserve. It's pride from the back porch. Now whether pride sneaks in from building ourselves up or tearing ourselves down, there is a common thread in all of this. And what is the word? Self. You can say it. Self. Yeah. Self is the common denominator. Self is the problem. Pride always wants the center of attention, whether it's good or bad. Good things happen. Look at me. Bad things happen. Oh, woe is me. Look at me. The only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about. That's what Oscar Wilde said. And that's what pride believes. Pride always wants to be the center in the spotlight on the stage with the solo. It is inordinate self-preoccupation. It is a fixation with self. There were two men who went up to the temple to pray, and one was a Pharisee, and the other one was a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood by himself, and he prayed this way, God, I thank you that I am not like all of those other men, extortioners and unjust and adulterers, and even like that tax collector over there. I fast twice a week. I give all the tithes that I should. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. There was a preacher who was preaching on that passage. He gave a, a sermon. It was a great sermon, and everybody left the auditorium, and they were in the foyer talking, and there was, a, there was a bunch of men in a circle talking, and one of them was an old deacon of the church, and they were talking to the minister that had just preached the sermon. And this old deacon was in his 70s. He's been around Jesus for a while. He's followed for a while. He knows what it is to be a Christian. He's a good man in many ways. He's honest and faithful and hardworking. He's a stalwart in the church and in the community. And they're talking about the sermon. And he turns to the preacher and he says, I'm so glad that I'm not like that Pharisee. Are you kidding? What? How can you miss the whole point of the sermon. 
I mean, you see that, right? By identifying himself with the tax collector and thinking that he is better than the Pharisee, he has just become as self-righteous as the Pharisee himself. That is unbelievable, and I'm sure glad I'm not like that deacon. (laughs) Do you see how quickly it comes? Oh, man, you were right there with me, right? Pride is subtle. We can easily see the fruit of pride in other people but we fail to see it in ourselves. We need to be sure of this, that if we don't think we're proud, we are proud. Pride, let's define it this way today. It's not thinking too much of myself. All of these deadly sins are good things that are perverted into excessive things. And there is a good part of pride. I should be able to look to God and thank Him for the gifts in my life and look on some of those things with pride. I should be proud of the gift of grace that has been given me. I should be proud of other people when they do great things. I I can be proud of my work. I can be proud of my kids. And so it's not thinking too much of myself, but here's pride. Here's where it takes the turn. It's thinking of myself too much. Pride is walking out onto your roof and surveying the kingdom that you have made in all of its glory and pointing to yourself, giving yourself the credit, taking all the credit from all the other people and interpreting all of that credit that you're getting as proof that you are as glorious as it gets. There's no one greater than you, and that's Nebuchadnezzar. And I want you to pay attention to how God responds to this. God says the same thing to Nebuchadnezzar twice. He says, seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. He says that in verse 25 and also in verse 32. And when God says something twice, you better listen. School was in session. And Nebuchadnezzar was about to learn. God says, Nebuchadnezzar, I'm going to make you go mad I'm going to make you go insane so that you will crawl on the ground and eat bugs so that you will learn. And God's reaction to the pride of Nebuchadnezzar teaches us why it's so deadly. It's because this crime is a cosmic crime against God himself. It contends for supremacy with God himself. Pride refuses to put God in the proper place in our lives because we want to run our own lives. We want to be our own saviors. We want to decide our own truth. Lewis Smead says this, that pride in the religious sense is a refusal to let God be God. It's to grab God's status for oneself. Pride is turning down God's invitation to be a creature in his garden and wishing instead to be the creator, independent, reliant on your own resources. Pride is the grand delusion, the fantasy of all fantasies, the cosmic put-on. Pride is, look what I built. It's all because of me. I'm the center. All the other sins that we do can lead us away from God, and that's bad enough. But pride is probably the most deadly sin, and it's particularly heinous because it leads us not just away from God, it leads us to elevate ourselves above God. When I'm at the center, 
God is not. And that's why pride is so deadly. Pride takes you, the crowning glory of God's creation, and removes you from his presence. It elevates you above him so that he is no longer necessary. And I want to tell you, God is not just going to stand by and let that happen. If you had a child and somebody came and tried to rip that child out of your arms, how would you react? God reacts that same way because that's what pride tries to do. Here's Proverbs chapter 15. The Lord tears down the house of the proud. Here's James 4 and also 1 Peter 5. God opposes the proud because Pride takes his children away from him. The only fitting response for God to have toward pride is opposition. God opposes pride actively. He hates it passionately. And he knows that if pride remains in my life, it means spiritual suicide for me. And that's why it has to be cut out. That's why it's deadly. And so, what is the answer to pride? How do we wreck this sin in us before this sin in us wrecks us. And the answer is the same. And it's in the verses that we just read. And they're the same. Uh, James 4, 6, 1 Peter 5, 5 says this, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the, what is it? Humble, humble. The answer in th those texts, are e it's echoed by Nebuchadnezzar. After his ordeal out in the wilderness with insanity and groping around like an animal and growing talons and hair like feathers, it says this, that at the end of his days, he lifted his eyes to heaven. I lifted my eyes to heaven. I realized that I wasn't the center anymore, and I blessed the Most High, and I honored him. I realized, I recognized that all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And at the end, I realized that I need to praise and extol and honor the King of Heaven for all His works are right and His ways are just. And those who walk in pride, He is able to humble. Humility, humility is the antidote to our pride. The definition of humility is going to have a very similar ring to it as pride, but it's going to be just the opposite. Pride is not thinking too much of myself, but thinking of myself too much. And likewise, humility is not thinking less of myself, but thinking of myself less. And you can see humility replace pride in the king, Nebuchadnezzar. He lifts his eyes to heaven, right? His, his eyes are no longer on his own kingdom, but on God and his kingdom. He realizes that he had help to build all that he had. He, he realizes that he can still rightly be proud of the gift that God has given him, but he also realizes that he had so little to do with it, and so he honors God and gives him the rightful place. Not only that, but he it begins to acknowledge the people around him, if you notice that. They were invisible before this, but now he begins to recognize his counselors and his lords and all the people that he is indebted to, and instead of seeking credit from them, he gives credit to them. And note, in all of this, he's still the king. He, there's still glory there. There's still majesty, as a king should have. But he doesn't think less of himself, right? He's still the king. He just thinks of himself less. God is the one with the greater glory still. And in recognizing that reality, even more glory and more greatness are given 
to him. There was a man who came to God and said, tell me about heaven and hell. And God said, come with me. I will show you. And he led the man to a place where there were two identical doors. And he opened the first door. And when the man looked inside the first door, he saw a large room. And in the center of the large room was a large table. And in the middle of that large table was a huge pot of soup. And the soup was simmering. And it was so inviting. And it smelled so good that the man's mouth began to water. And all around the table sat thin, gray, sickly people. And beside each one of them, there was a very large spoon with an extremely long handle. And as he watched, he saw that the spoons required um, all of one's might to lift up and to place into the soup. And some of them were able to get the spoon into the, into the soup and get food on the end of the spoon, but the weight and the length of the spoons made it impossible to bring the food back to their lips. And the man was overcome with pity for their plight because they're around this great feast, but only starving. And he turned to God, and God said, this is hell. And he closed the door, and he went to the second door, and he opened the second door. And when the man looked in the second door, he saw the same thing. He saw a large room in the same, and, and the same large table, and there was the same large pot of soup in the middle of the table, and the same monstrous spoons beside the people around the table. But this table was occupied by people who were robust and healthy. They were fat, they were jolly, they were laughing and sharing stories and jokes. And he turned to God and he said, I don't understand God. And God said, just watch. And as he did, he saw each of the people pick up their spoons and dip them in the soup and feed each other. Pride says, everything exists for me. I'm the only one here that matters. And that is the very heart of hell itself. And when pride takes hold of a culture, everyone starves because nobody is listening and nobody cares about anything except themselves. And so there's no one to help. Humility says exactly the opposite. It says, I'm not the source of life, I'm not the center of the room, and I will cling to and be dependent on the one who is. The heart of heaven is to become low and to see others before myself and to love and to serve them. And when humility takes hold of a culture, everyone is filled and everyone is satisfied because everyone is looking out for everyone else and when everyone cares for someone else, then everyone is cared for. Philippians 2 says this of Jesus, that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. It is impossible for somebody to give their life for other people if all they're thinking about is themselves. It just doesn't happen. Jesus, the creator of the universe, left everything 
to come and be a human. And as if that wasn't degrading enough, then he thought about you and me instead of himself. And it led him to a cross. It was a humble desire that he had to help you out of your sin and pass the death that awaits you. He did that for you. And he did it because a day of reckoning is coming. This, this is the other thing we need to know about pride. The scriptures that we read earlier say God is opposed to pride. And that means that God is on a collision course with pride. We could say it this way, a wreck is coming. Isaiah 2 verse 12 says, For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is, say it with me, proud. Against all that is lifted up, it shall be brought low. If you scramble for your own glory and recognition, you not only go against the very grain of the universe, but you also put yourself on a collision course to get wrecked in the future. Because one day, God will lift up the humble and he will put down the proud. And on that day, when Christ comes back, Christ will either be a great terror to you or a great treasure to you. You'll either welcome him in love or you will run from him in fear. So the question is, which will it be for you? Here's how you know. Here's the test. What are you doing right now with your giant long spoon? Who are you trying to feed? If you're only feeding yourself, if you are the only thing that matters in your life, then now is the time to repent of your pride. Don't make God throw you out in the wilderness as an insane person. You have the opportunity today to bow the knee and say, Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. Philippians 2 goes on. He says, it says that Jesus humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is is Lord. The secret to humility is not to focus on yourself at all, but it's to bow over and over and over again to the only one who is deserving of praise, to confess every moment of our lives that Jesus is the Christ. Maybe you've never done that today. Right now is your chance. As we sing here, I'll, I'll be here. I want you to come and we can bow together. One day, the day of reckoning will come. And on that day, every knee will bow. A wreck is coming, right? But you don't have to be a part of that wreck. Bow your own before that day comes. And you can say with Nebuchadnezzar, Praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all of his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. God, teach us how to look to others before we look to ourselves. That's what allows everybody to be fed. 
And that's what gives us joy. That's the way you built the universe. Would you teach this to us? Help us to look to the cross. The ultimate form of humility, where the creator of the world bowed to us and hung on a cross to save us from our sin and from our death. God, let us not look at that scene without changing who we are. Let us be humble. Let us be humble. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.